On the first Sunday of Lent, uh, we always turn our attention to this story, to, these, uh, to Jesus' 40 days of fasting and temptation in the wilderness. And this actually, it's important to, to locate this. It occurs right after Jesus' baptism uh, and just before he goes public with his ministry. And in Matthew's gospel, he goes out preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, in other gospels, he, he actually goes right away and proclaims in the synagogue, synagogue of Capernaum that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. Like he's going out in courage and boldness and he's preaching these things. But again, right in the middle of his baptism, right in the middle of his public ministry, is this moment of wilderness. This pivotal wilderness encounter is actually our biblical backdrop for the season of Lent. For 40 days, our 40 days of prayerfully reckoning with our own temptations and our appetites and our omissions and our shortcut seeking. It's a unique time, I think, of functional honesty is the way I like to think of it, about our weakness and about our need. Turning from our serial self-sufficiency to renewed dependence on God through prayer and through fasting, through generosity. We're turning to these practices that are God-centered, God-oriented, and others-focused. And lastly, it's an interruption, I think, of our often thoughtless rhythms, and we have them. Our rhythms in really a very diluted, very distracted age. We get a chance to refocus our hearts and our minds and even our bodies to encounter Jesus in a fresh way during Holy Week and Easter. That's why we do it, and that's part of why we revisit this story every year. This year, we have Matthew's account of the wilderness, which, along with Luke, is more detailed than Mark's. John doesn't include it. John's later gospel you know, doesn't mention it, most likely, because John knew that this important event had already been recorded and was already circulating through the church. John had lots of other stories to tell uh, th that were in his written record, and as he said at the end of his gospel, if they wrote down everything that Jesus did, it would fill a world full of books, okay? So as you might imagine, given that we visit this in one gospel or another every year, I've preached on the wilderness and on tempta the temptation many times. But this year, uh, you know, I, I preached three sermons on uh, Ash Wednesday, and then I'm waking up on Thursday morning to, to this story again. And as I started my process, which always begins with electio, kind of just trying to listen to the word, my mind kept turning to John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. And, and what happens in this, this account would have been not long after the wilderness, really, and in John's account, just after Jesus has performed his first miracle, turning water to wine in Cana. So beginning in verse 23, this is what John chapter 2 says. And this is where my mind was turning. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew himself what was in man. It's interesting, isn't it? Here's how Eugene Peterson translates that. He says, they entrusted their lives to him, but Jesus didn't entrust his life to them. He knew them inside and out, knew how untrustworthy they were. He didn't need any help in seeing right through people. What do you think about that? Here people are flocking to Jesus, believing in him, which seems to be the point of his public ministry. Of course it is. And John gives us this glimpse into how Jesus was processing this, how Jesus is thinking and feeling. 
And there's just no escaping it, really. Jesus was guarded about people. I think this shoots some hard-to-plug holes in the idea that Jesus, who is our exemplar of love and kindness, just thought people were generally fantastic. That he operated with a sunny, extroverted optimism. And I'm not an extrovert, uh, or I'm, I'm really not all that sunny, honestly. But this gives me real pause to think about how Jesus is processing this. It's probably going too far, it certainly is to say Jesus is cynical by at least our modern definition, but by definition, cynical means the belief that people are purely motivated by self-interest, distrustful of human insincerity or integrity. Again, maybe that's too strong to apply to Jesus here, particularly the purely motivated by self-interest part. But again, John wants us to see something, doesn't he? It's so interesting to me. Maybe this fully human Jesus was, like us, like you probably, tempted towards cynicism. I think Jesus struggled with people the way we struggle with people. At least that I do. You probably do. And with the way we struggle with ourselves if we have a shred of self-awareness. But what I, the reason I bring this up and what really matters here is this. Jesus' distrust doesn't diminish his love for people. Isn't that interesting? I, I think it is. It doesn't weaken his resolve to give them the kingdom. Far from it. Despite his awareness that people can be fake and self-interested and manipulative and ignorant and fickle and mean. Not any of you, just me, right? Because... Let's be honest, we can all be those things. He still came for their sakes and for ours. So as he entered the baptismal water before the wilderness, as he entered the wilderness itself, the wilderness of testing, as, you know, and on his public path to the cross, I think we can say that Jesus entered this divine, uh, this tension of divine love, perfect divine love, and human awfulness and untrustworthiness. Jesus doesn't resolve that tension, I don't think. No, he just puts himself right at the center of it, where he remains to this day, holding those two powerful realities together with his own life and body. Mercy and grace are strengthened where Jesus is stretched for us. In his temptation and in his suffering, among the crowds and the cross, Jesus is holding that tension together between divine love and our desperate need of change. Suffice it to say, this is why the Holy Spirit sent him into the wilderness. Because everything Jesus would experience from people and culture and systems and religion and government would mean that his resolve to do the will of God would be vulnerable and contested, would be hard. He would be vulnerable. And so he accepted his dependence and need, even telling his body that for these 40 days, the focus is on the Father alone with the help of the Spirit alone. And one more thing on John 2, if I may, before I move on to the gospel a bit. As I was reflecting on this passage, for the first time I thought, how lonely that must have felt for Jesus. Guarded, but for good reason. It had to have felt incredibly isolating, I think, especially because all people, as it says, he knew what was in all people. It it necessarily included these 12 men that he chose with whom he was spending nearly all his time and one of them already a rat gnawing at the seams of his ministry. 
I wonder how it must have felt for so much of Jesus' life to feel transactional, to feel all those expectations, the stuff people want from him, to feel like he couldn't really entrust himself to people. I think many of us can relate to that. It's, it's encouraging to me. I think it tells us that Jesus, like us, probably got lonely in the company of others too. You ever feel that way? I do. I just think we should probably sit with that at some point, maybe not right now, given this the widespread and deepening loneliness of our time, of our age. Jesus felt it, I think, even in the company of people. So let's turn to Matthew's gospel now. I'll tie these together. Um, Verse one says, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We don't know if this plan, if anything about what was gonna happen was clear to Jesus, but we know that he knew this was important and it necessitated a fast. To go into the wilderness at all, he knew was heavy, historically heavy. In uh, in scriptural history, the wilderness is a place of testing. It's where you don't really want to go, but quite often you must. Sometimes people run there to escape greater dangers of civilization, as in Moses and David and Hagar and Elijah. Other times, people are led there by God. Also Moses, also Hagar, and of course, all of Israel goes into the wilderness. You could include Jonah, probably, under his little dead uh, vine, arguing with God, sorting it out, himself being sifted. So over and over, these remote places of seeming isolation and difficulty are where God uniquely speaks to and provides for his people, while exposing their lack of trust, while engaging their fear. So in Jesus' wilderness, will he be able to submit his own human desires to the Father? Will he be able to submit the way he feels and will feel? Will he trust the will of the Father and be willing to suffer for people he cannot trust? This is what he's facing. Will the loneliness of that distrust alienate him from them and make a different path more attractive? Turns out this 40 days of fasting provided an initial soft spot, right, for Satan to exploit first. Jesus is hungry. This is the most accessible point of relief. This is the low-hanging, seemingly morally neutral thing. You're hungry, Jesus. Just turn stones to bread. I mean, if you're really the Son of God, if you're who that voice from heaven said you are, why wouldn't he want to feed you? Why wouldn't he want you to do this? And a quick point about the devil here uh, in the Greek, diabolos. It's interesting what that means, literally the splitter. The splitter, trying to split Jesus from the truth, from the Father, trying to split him from his future. The splitter is not physically described here, and uh, though Milton's Paradise Lost provides an, an origin story, what we call an etiology, we don't get this in the Bible. In the New Testament, there is simply this conviction that an anti-God force, most often conceived personally, exists and works in history, especially against the purposes and the people of God, with what? The special aim of splitting people from God and from one another. You think about just about everything that's wrong in our world is this type of splitting between us in our closest relationships and even between ourselves, who we are, who God says we are, and how we feel about ourselves. Make bread, he says. Help yourself, Jesus. 
And of course, Jesus could do it if he wanted to, but he doesn't. Instead, he dusts off Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8 in particular. Here's the fuller context. We're revisiting Israel's own wilderness confrontation. It says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus is invoking Deuteronomy and really he's embodying all Israel in the wilderness. He's reckoning with hunger again, which is so demanding and commanding. He's reckoning with the challenge to trust what God has spoken. Every word that the, the Hebrews literally says that's pouring out of the mouth of God. But the church has always known that the scope is wider and we see this even in Romans 5 today. Jesus is acting on behalf of all humanity in the face of temptation as a final and faithful Adam. He's doing it all for all of us. He doesn't eat on his own terms as Adam and Eve did. And though we can be certain Jesus could have offered this staggering, I even kind of want to imagine it in in some ways, but this staggering spirit-led rebuttal of his own, he has nothing new to say. Think about that. No novel spin. He simply lets the Word of God do the work of God because he trusts it. He trusts what it says about the character of his father, even in his own weakness, especially in his weakness. And maybe that's the most striking point here in this first temptation, driven to his lowest bodily state by hunger and exposure, no doubt mentally and physically exhausted. Just imagine how exhausted. He's invoking the call to live by the word and actually living by the word himself starved of everything else. So the next in verses five and six, Jesus is tempted to test what has just been proclaimed from heaven at his baptism again, the Father's pleasure in him. Well, if he loves you so much, why don't you throw yourself off the temple? He'll save you. Jesus takes his own life in his hands, throws himself off the pinnacle of the temple, He would have to be rescued, right? If all of that stuff you heard is true, of course. So try it. And here, not surprisingly, Satan, he gets ahead of Jesus a little bit because Jesus has been using Scripture. Satan tries to preempt him by co-opting Scripture himself, subtly bending it to his own agenda. It should be familiar to us, actually. We see it. We saw it in the garden. We see it in our culture. The deception and cunning that draws people unwittingly into the ditches of falsehood and heresy on one side or another of what the Word really says and what the Word really means, that comes from hell. And that's why it's so hard to tell. Jesus responds with a faithful word from Scripture. He's not deterred. He says, I'm not going to test God. It's written, I'm here to be tested. Third and finally, the tempter offers Jesus what I would describe as influence and power without sacrifice and responsibility. And that's a familiar, dangerous combination. We should be familiar with it. One that still permeates our politics, it weakens our halls of power, and it pollutes our communication platforms. 
There are just so many shortcuts to influence these days, it's mind-boggling. Where savvy, talented, even well-meaning people gather a large following. Think about it. All the while, they're accountable to no one and responsible for no one. It's a problem. And to some degree, this is what he's offering Jesus. To get that promised power to shortcut the cross, Jesus only has to redirect his allegiance and his trust. And you might be thinking, Jesus, the Son of God, is never going to bow a knee to Satan. That's just an absurd thing to even imagine. But think about what the devil shows him. From a high mountain, he parades the evidence. We love evidence. He parades actual real-world evidence of his dominion. All those sprawling nations like Rome that are holding sway over history, their boots are firmly planted on the necks of all these tiny little nations like Israel and others. They're dominating the world with iron and concrete. Look at the evidence, so prosperous, so powerful. How to explain it if it's not real, Jesus? Look around. You can have it if you want it, no cross required. And here's the thing, Jesus knew he was the ruler of the world because he called him that three times between John chapters 12 and 16, the ruler of the world. But that was about to change, wasn't it? In a sudden flash of authority, this emaciated and embattled Messiah He powers up in the truest sense. And he gives the order. He speaks the word and he banishes the tempter. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And look, behold, Matthew says with a little bit of a narrator's flourish, he says angels came to take care of him. The author, uh, Frederick Buechner, he imagines that Jesus, who's barely dry from his baptism, he went into the wilderness led of the Spirit to ask himself this question. Again, the words of the Father ringing in his ears and through his, his soul. What does it mean to be me? What does it mean to be the Son of God in whom the Father is pleased? To be the one holding that tension of God's love and humanity's wretchedness together. What does it mean? If that's the question, then the answer, I think, is this. It means Jesus knows and Jesus proves that being who he is comes from beyond who he is. Being who he is comes from beyond who he is. It means that resisting that manipulating voice in Eden requires being buttressed from beyond himself. Dependence. It means so long he, as he has truly taken on flesh, and he has, then utter reliance and utter trust in the Father are the only way. The only way he could give his life for the sake of those who are not worthy of it, that he does not trust. Friends, utter reliance and trust are the only way for us to grow in love and holiness. This is what Lynn is about. This is what it's about. It's about deepening our dependence to reclaim more and more of our full humanity from which the splitter wants to split us, to defy the very gap The splitter is continually trying to widen. That's what we're doing. We believe and we know that the Son of God in human form had the same neural networks. He had the same emotional needs as us. He was a man with a vulnerable body that was bent willfully in the direction of suffering for love. He didn't do it because he thought people were just great. But because he knew that people, even all the pushy, all the passive-aggressive people, are still the crown of all creation. They're precious and loved, and they are singular in their glory, you and me. Even if they didn't act like it 
in his time or make him feel like that was actually true. I think the idea that sometimes floats through the church is that becoming more like Jesus, growing in grace and holiness means just feeling better about everyone and everything. And that feels impossible to me. And that, you know, this, this is what love is on a grand gospel scale, is just to feel great about everyone and everything. And honestly, I just don't think that's how it works. I don't think it worked that way for Jesus and for us. Jesus didn't have in himself that duality and that artifice that he knew was in all people, all people. He was trustworthy through and through, but even as the best person who ever lived, listen, someone without our contradiction, someone without our character issues, Jesus determined to love people with the Father's love, not because of how good they were or trustworthy they, they were, but because they were loved. He made it his will prayerfully and painfully. And that's some of the pain into which we're willing to go in this season. So this incredible news invites us back into our wilderness, so to speak, in Lent, where with Jesus we remember what we've so easily forgotten, that we are dependent on grace and mercy to be able to even give grace and mercy. This wilderness of repentance is where together, you know, we learn to love better. We actually have to learn what love is again with all its challenges. It's where we, yes, we can bring our cynicism. We can bring our doubt and our anger and all the ways we justify them to this wilderness because Jesus has already been there. And Jesus is holding out his own strength and his own faithfulness and his own success at trusting to us and for us. In closing, just know this. We have a Savior who didn't choose the self-actualizing shortcuts. He chose us because he chose the Father. He chose the Father's love as the wellspring for his own love of humanity. Betrayed, brutalized by all people, he let his guard down willingly and knowingly. And bleeding out on the cross, Jesus proved that his concerns about humanity were founded, didn't he? But above all, on his journey through death, out the other side, 1 Peter 2 tells us that the Lord of our shame, bearing the crowd's revulsion and abuse, entrusted himself not to people, but it says he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, who will work it out as it should be, who will vindicate him, the one who would vindicate him not only from the injustice, but for the benefit and the salvation of the unjust. For you, for me, for all people, even with all that stuff in us. Lord, I pray that you help us to hold tight to that. Certainly we're not worthy of your trust. Certainly we struggle to make sense of the call upon our, our lives. We struggle to love others in the way that we should love them. But today we want to rely on you. We want to walk into this season relying on you, going where you've gone, but only because you've gone there and you've succeeded. And I pray you work in our hearts that which you desire, Lord. And everything that we've been split off from, every way in which we've been divided in our relationships and in our own sense of self, I pray that you would close the gap that you would bring us to wholeness and healing, not just as individuals, but as a church, Lord, as your people and, as a, and, and in your world, we pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
Amen.